Welcome to Failing Forward. Cal, can you please introduce yourself for our audience today? Uh, thank you, Emily. My name is Galkita Lago, and I'm currently the coordinator for Women Respond, part of the Global VSLA team based in Ethiopia. We're continuing our conversation this week about Women Respond. In the last episode, we talked about how we had to change the way we thought about the technology and the structure of our surveys so that women could be in more control over what they wanted to share, how they wanted to share it, and how long they wanted to spend answering questions. What else did we have to do as we thought about our learning process to put women back in control, to let them have more control over their own stories and how they shared them and what happened next? Working very closely with the women leaders, particularly, I mean, building a few time before the actual survey to actually reach out to the women leaders um, and then for them to discuss like the objective with the communities and so on is much more effective. And in Niger, because the you know, women in saving groups, the leaders were very critical in actually like explaining what the research is uh, to the different community members, particularly the women. Uh, and also when the findings uh, came in later on and disseminating the findings, uh, they were very critical. Um, that's not always the case. Like often we have like saving groups leaders, community leaders who take the, the leadership or the center role in terms of providing an explanation about the research and later on the, the findings to community members. And that is something that we should always um, consider, particularly uh, to make sure that it's the women themselves who have an information, right? The, the source of the information should not always be care or other organization. So if you kind of co-design the research process alongside with them, and then women leaders, women groups, and you know the different community members we work with, they will also become um, a source of the information. And then they can tell us what works and what doesn't work because they know the context really well. There are certain things that we might be missing because we don't live in that context. We might focus on women and forget like people from like minority ethnic groups or religious groups and so on. But the, the people we work with, they know the power dynamics within the community. So they can tell us what would work in terms of how people can access information. Is there a specific example you can talk about where we thought we were going to share information in a particular way and a woman leader said, actually do it differently and we had to change because what we were doing didn't work? I think the leader example was a good one. A woman, she's a leader of a saving group, actually informed the, the team saying like a lot of the information are coming in and being translated to a specific local language. So there are women within the community that does not you know, use that language. So we need to have different translation of the findings so that a lot of people have access to it. And then that was adapted. And then she did a number of like community radio discussions and community discussions. So this word to mouse information dissemination was very important. Other time, particularly like Ethiopia, because we were working with adolescent girls, we were very cautious about how we, you know, shared the information back. When the adolescent girls were asked, how do you want to get the information back? And they said, can you work through biology female teachers in our school? So the school does have access to the findings. And then the local government office, including the women affairs office. Uh, but it was really important for them, like to have those female teachers 
having discussion with them around the data finding. And that's exactly what happened. They did, they worked through the different clubs, uh, particularly adolescent girls clubs and gender clubs and so on. And then the female teachers, particularly biology subject female teachers were critical in discussing the findings with the adolescent girls. So respecting their choice, how they wanted to get it, because people usually, um, depending on the situation and depending on the culture, they would want to discuss with somebody, you know, they trust and they feel comfortable with. And not all an institution or not all community leaders might be the best source of the information. So if we ask them, they usually give us options how they wanted to get the information. And I think our role in that is to respect and facilitate that. One of the things you mentioned there and you mentioned in other ways as we've talked this morning is the idea that data isn't the end of the conversation. The data isn't the goal. The data starts a conversation. So who gives you the data makes a difference because in your example, do girls feel comfortable then asking questions or having a discussion about the data with the person who's giving it to them? The same way that it was good to have phone calls sometimes so people could talk to another human, the data by itself was only part of the goal. Are there other ways that we tried to reinforce that data as a force for action as opposed to data as the end state? Because the main aim with Women Respond, it was not to only just have data. It's important to have it, but as much as possible, we use like different platforms to share it back so that we can inspire like action. I will use like a few examples of the action we're seeing at the community level. Uh, and you can also see, depending on who you talk to in the community, the result could be different because the experience of different people is, you know, different. The Ethiopia one is very interesting one because when we did the quantitative data collection with the adolescent girls, education and water and hygiene were like number one and number two impact areas and need areas. But later on, when we have like the interview and focus group discussion with community leaders, livelihood is their main, the main problem. Because for adults who are managing their household, they, they were worrying about their financial income. They told us, you know, even if school open, we might not be able to afford school materials for students and so on. And this is a specific like age difference. The adolescent girls also like talk about their livelihood situation at home, but for them, they're really worried about their education and the, the future of their education because for a year, the school was closed. Because of this discussion, the findings discussion, uh, there was an understanding among like community members, A, to address early marriage. Young girls were sharing back with us through the interview that they're seeing early marriage happening, some students were, didn't come back or didn't resume school when it opened, particularly girls, but also boys students. And then the community leaders and the local government offices, they decided to mobilize different resources. So they start with a campaign, again, it's like early marriage and pretty much like encouraging community members going door to door to the different districts and asking and encouraging people to send back students back to school, particularly girls. And the other piece is because they understood there is an economic challenge to it that households who could not afford to buy school materials might not be sending students and it would be most likely the girls' students who would stay home. They mobilized money and different school materials, including exercise book, pen and like uniforms and so on. And they distributed to economically vulnerable households. And the other piece is in the second round qualitative interview, a lot of the girls said School is open, but because, you know, last year we get just a passing grade, we're not catching up with this grade subject. 
And then this was communicated back to the schools and the education bureau, and they took in additional tutorial services, after school tutorial services in 36 schools. So that was really like a combined action between, you know, the different government partners and the local community as well. So similar things we've seen is like Nigeria, a lot of women in saving groups, they start advocating and campaigning for students to go back to school after the school was opened. And we've seen cases where saving groups members start using their social fund to support families that were really struggling so that students could go back to school as well. They also decided after seeing the result that, okay, we might need to create like a group business that the group collectively invest on. But the aim is to get a profit for the group, but also to support the most financially vulnerable members of the saving group. So these are, you know, after seeing the result, it created like a shared responsibility. And one of the quotes that I think you and I have used in different presentations is from Niger, where they said, after I get the findings, I'm like, I'm getting a bigger picture of what's going on because they're seeing how other people are dealing with the pandemic and what they're facing as well. Particularly for saving groups, they've also told us like, we are learning from how other groups adapted their functions during the pandemic. So we're taking lessons as well. So, you know, they use it as an information the same way we use information. And they also use it to, you know, to take action. And we will be trying to follow up with what action they take as a result of the data. Was there anything that really surprised you as we went through this process? Earlier, I talked about some of the action. And that's like a really great examples of what could happen when you put the information back to, you know, the community so that they can use it. During the design stage, you know, we have like the public dashboard of the data. Like we knew the actual people that we get the data from will not have access to this dashboard, you know, for education, access to technology reasons and so on. So like finding locally effective and feasible ways to just make available so that they can use it, right? Like we always say information is power. It's neither fair nor right to just collect the data from them and then not providing it back. So we're seeing like really promising results. The other piece is even things that we know from past experience is completely taken differently when you have the data. I'm going to come back to the YouTube example again. We knew starting from the pandemic, there was so many policy briefs from different institutions and, you know, examples from like the Ebola crisis and so on about women are more likely to be unsafe in their household, early marriage or forced marriage, child marriage will increase. So we do have those information. But when we have the actual data from the, the adolescent girls in the community and we go to our government partners and say, like, this is what they're telling us. We interviewed 36 adolescent girls and we talked to an additional like 18 to 24 community members and they all know someone who married early. And then that created a reaction right away because that's the data from you know, the ground. And they said, oh, we we're going to do a home to home different visits to the different districts and talk to community members. And they start hearing some of the cases themselves as well. And we've saw like, particularly from the women and children's office, there was a huge reaction. They said like, this data really helped us because you know we had community engagement, but we didn't really know what was going on because we didn't have data coming in. So this data actually you know, gives them like a starting point for them to continue to talk to community members. So the first year when we did the data collection, there was a report of early marriage. 
in the second year, there were only a few people who said like they actually knew someone who's been through, you know, early marriage or forced marriage. And they even mobilized some effort to bring back those girls who faced early marriage during the first year of the pandemic so that they can continue their schooling. This is like the two things that surprised me. Even when we know things, when we have the data, the reaction is completely different. And then, you know, community members, as long as we provide the information in a way they can use it, there is a huge chance that they would act on uh, the data. It's so fascinating what you're saying about the power of saying we've spoken to people right now and here's what they're saying versus we know this happened before, maybe in a different country, maybe in a different context. We know this could be happening is less likely to prompt people to act than saying this is what's happening right now in the communities that you serve. How do we think about changing the way we use data for action or the way we generate data at all in order to make sure that it's more likely to push for action? For one thing, I think it should be fairly regular. And we usually do this through different programs and when the actual crisis happened. And a lot of the time, what particularly what government partners are saying is like, oh, you know, I wish we had this system before as well, because it kind of, it's an indication of how people are dealing with. So that's coming regularly is very important. And in order to do that, it has to be like part of an ongoing system. It can't always be, and I'm going to you know, challenge myself by saying, yes, we do need like a standalone research. We do need a standalone data collection, depending on what we're doing. But as much as possible, that listening process, the regular listening process, it should be embedded in whatever we're doing, right? This is not just for care. But any, you know, for any organization, government partners that are locally working with community members, that listening process, it actually helps us to, to design better intervention and to create also an ownership in terms of what we're doing and like bringing people's voices. Overall understanding should be like they definitely know better about their own context than what they're dealing with. What we try to do, women respond, and what we hopefully will continue to push ourselves to do is ensuring that the way we talk about women should not always be from, you know, the challenges and the impacts they faced with, because that's pretty much will enable us like to perpetuate the same stereotype that women are victims all the time. And throughout the data, that's not what we're seeing. Of course, they faced impact and often disproportionate impact compared to their men counterparts. But at the end of the day, they were really mobilizing different efforts at home, at their community, they were taking actions. So that needs to come out in whatever sectors that we work in. We really need to be able to show their action, their you know, agency, their determination alongside with some of the problems they're facing. That enables us to understand their capabilities. So we don't, you know, we don't go with this attitude of let's try to solve your problem and instead, hey, like you're doing this, this is the action you're taking, and this is how you know we can support, or how do you want us to support you? should rather be the question. That's one of my favorite parts about Women Respond. What are you already doing? And what do you need us to do with you? And that idea of showcasing leadership is something I'd never seen in a survey before, especially one that's a crisis-driven, you know, here is something that's going wrong in the world. And so that's certainly one of the things I found most compelling about it. If you could do it all over again, knowing what you know now, what would you do differently from the beginning? I think from the very beginning, except a few teams in different country office, like 
we didn't necessarily run like the questions. We did testing, but we didn't necessarily run like the questions with the community members because of the limitation of the COVID restriction, to be honest. Moving forward, I think they should be part of like the design process. But because of like the, the feedback loop, we also understood like how they want like the question to be shaped. I think a lot of the comments we got in all of the countries were like, why am I only selecting this one answer? Like maybe I should rank it. I want to be able to do that. I want to have like an open space to, to provide additional thoughts and so on. So in, this, in the next rounds, we're trying to adapt the tools from that angle. But if we have to do it all over again, or in the, in the next phase of Women Respond, I think it should be around from the very beginning when we create the question, there have to be a community engagement. The way we did it last time is we did taste the survey. We run the, the question and then later on through the dissemination and the feedback process, we learn how they felt about the tool. And speaking of the next round of Women Respond, where do we go from here? We want to go beyond COVID. Uh, we wanted to understand any context crisis they're facing. And so the way we wanted to reshape it is by asking for them to define what crisis is really affecting their life. So that's one step forward because this one was mostly around COVID. Of course, we got insight about other crises they're facing, uh, but it was mostly around COVID. Uh, so going forward, like we want to be able to understand, hey, what are you facing currently? What do you identify as like your priority issue currently? And then they, they're the one who will, you know, tell us how they handling the, it could be food prices issues, it could be climate change, it could be, it could be anything, whatever they identify, we wanted to be able to hear how they're addressing it. The other piece is we wanted to understand how they are like, particularly around advocacy issues, particularly around mobilization, how do they see us in terms of our support level for them? So we're expanding it a little bit so that we can understand not just their priority action and needs, but also in terms of pushing things forward, what is a priority topic for them that they want to, they want us to advocate alongside with them. So there's like a few changes and definitely going to go beyond COVID. And it would have like, now that we, we, we don't have like specific restriction, we want to be able to expand like some of the questions so that they can actually rank it and give us like additional information as well. And of course, the quantitative one always going to be like an integral part, because as I said earlier, the quantitative one me like bring in the numbers and just the snapshot of the situation and the qualitative is always have to like follow the, the quantitative survey because that, that actually put the human story and the situation basically. So it give us a detailed and you know, a better understanding of their situation. One last question. If you had to sum up the most important learning of the podcast in one or two sentences, what would they be? We can always do better in terms of how we go about research and surveys. Make sure we listen as, you know, as a development practitioners or whether you work in the humanitarian setting, we should be always there to listen and learn, and particularly from women. As we share their voices to the rest of the world, we really have to make sure that they are our number one audiences as well. That data belongs to them, that stories belongs to them, the photos, the videos, anything we take, it belongs to them as well. So it can't just be shared in spaces that they don't have access to. So we just have to build in and think of different ways that works within the context to make sure they, they have access to the information. Thank you so much for your time today. I've learned so much listening to you and really think there's a lot of people who can benefit from hearing what you have to share. 
Thank you, Emily. Thank you for having me. It was really interesting to talk to you about Women Respond, although you're also an integral part of Women Respond. So. <laughs> for our audience today, thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for the next Failing Forward.